The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. Yeah, I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate, how a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word, Broomgate. The following is a presentation of the SpeedSport Podcast Network. Mike Wallace doesn't have all that much driving experience. For the last three or four years, he's put in his dues in this business. Mike Wallace comes down to the line. He'll pick up the win. It's fast car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. The battle's for the lead. Mike Wallace gets by Jason Leffler. Mike Wallace comes off turn number four. A great move in that corner. He comes to the line and will win. From grassroots to the top of the racing world. Hear the stories of NASCAR's biggest names and how they made it all the way. Who was Tony Stewart before he was Tony Stewart? I could barely make enough money to pay attention, let alone to try to survive. So, I mean, I was doing it all myself. Presented by Crosley. Amplify your style. Here are your hosts, Mike Wallace and Jeff Kent. Welcome to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace, part of the Speed Sport Podcast Network, presented by Crosley. My name is Jeff Kent. Strap yourselves in, pull those belts tight. We'll take you on a journey from short tracks across America to super speedways and everything in between. Today's guest, longtime crew chief, in fact, two-time NASCAR Winston Cup Series champion crew chief. But it all began in 1974 when he worked as a tire changer, then a jackman. 1982 moved to Junior Johnson Motorsports, where he was crew chief when Daryl Waltrip won his second consecutive championship. In fact, he and Waltrip became the top driver-crew chief combo in NASCAR, winning 43 races during the 1980s, including the 1985 championship. In 1992, went to work for our friend Felix Sabatis, who was on the show last week, and Sabco Racing. Some driver named Kenny Wallace. Yeah. Part of that Heard team. of that guy That's before. Right. Uh, he has worked with four NASCAR champion uh, drivers, Cale Yarborough, Daryl Waltrip, Terry Labonte, and Kurt Busch. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, you know him from his uh, years at Fox Sports as well. Please welcome to the show Jeff Hammond. Jeff, say hi to Mike Wallace. 
Hi, Mike. How you doing, Mike? <laughs> That's the announcer and Jeff coming out there. Well, I'm going to tell you what, man. I, I, was, I was getting ready to tell Jeff Kent. Uh, I'm sitting here. I'm, I'm having a flashback of Chris Myers okay. from Fox. You know, which is a compliment. Chris, Chris is a good Absolutely. friend of mine and everything like that. But, that, but yeah. you, you, you have one of those voices that tells me that uh, you made a living doing it. I did. I did for, for more than 40 years, Jeff. I there did. you go. <laughs> so, so now, Jeff, in today's world, we sit around and we look at each other and we talk and drink beer while we're talking to somebody. <laughs> so we're, How do you know well, I didn't do that back in the day? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> No, there's nothing wrong with that as long as as long as the uh, the boss doesn't catch you. Yeah, because right. it's not like they can get your you know breath over the radio. So you know, so what if you got a Budweiser or a Crown Royal drink? You know, before you get on the air to kind of steady the nerves and calm the voice down. I swear, Jeff's done this before because he sounds like he he, he picked out two drinks of choice. <laughs> like I said, I work with Chris Myers. Yeah, <laughs> all right. Well, Jeff, you know, uh, first of all, thanks for being on the show. The, the concept of our show really is finding out who you were before who you are because everybody knows you as Jeff Hammond, uh, great crew chief, Hollywood Hammond. We're going to get into that later on. But and uh, but what I'd like to do today is a little different breakup because you're so knowledgeable of the sport, and especially from the mechanical side, the crew chief side. Help us understand the new generation car that nascar has did you first of all did you watch the california race by any chance or excerpts of it or anything i haven't i have not missed a race uh since the start of the season because this new car this new generation uh next generation you know car that they keep talking about uh has really ca captured my attention because it's so different that i want to understand it i mean it is uh such a departure, Mike, from what you and I were used to working on. I mean, we always knew the car worked in an X, and, you know, you put the stiffer spring in the right front, and you put the softer side, springs in the left side. You know, you, you did your standard basic stuff that was the way you did it. I mean, you didn't deviate a whole lot from that. Everybody, now and then, people would come up with a, a different, you know, diagonal as far as the wedge is concerned, or maybe more nose weight or more or less nose weight, you know, changing the casters. But this race car is not just different. It is out of this world different, at least the way I look at it. Yeah, so what and, is your, uh, uh, your immediate outside opinion of it? Do you think it, I mean, I get a lot of people since we're doing this show that send me texts or notes and ask questions, and sometimes I get them answered, sometimes I don't, but... Do you think they went too far with this car, or do you think it's it's a base format we're just going to work on for years, and it is what it is now? All right. My opinion only, Mike, is it looks like we've gone too far because we were too far behind. Okay. I mean, we really stayed, and, you know, I'm, I'm just using this. We stayed on the on the NASCAR track that was established back in the mid-50s and early 60s. And you know this to be true as far as, you know, rear steer cars and then eventually evolved into front steer cars. But the chassis design, the roll cage design, had not not really varied. You know, it not really varied. We had safety innovations, but we made those innovations to that car of the time. We did make it safer, absolutely, beyond a shadow of a doubt. But today, for NASCAR again to continue to grow 
and this is this is my opinion, and looking around at other forms of racing, and Mike, I know you do. I know you watch other things besides just stock car racing. So you see Formula One, you see IndyCar, you see World Rally. Technology uh, is in all of those other forms of motorsports. And yet we want to, we would love to have those folks come race with us. And we'd love to have BMW. We'd love to have Audi. Uh, you know, you just go down the list. I mean, there's a long list of folks that would really like to be, I think, in NASCAR. And at the same time, you know, we'd love to have them because it would benefit the sport as a, as a whole. I mean, the, the teams would benefit. Instead of having three manufacturers and everybody vying to try to get a piece of that uh, money, you might say, that comes from them, it would allow it to, to be able to disperse that money because I think back in when the day that Dodge was involved, uh, it helped the overall health of the sport. And we need a fourth. We need a fifth. We really need six manufacturers total to be able to make the sport, I think, as viable as we'd like to see it. And, I mean, that helps the owners. That helps the, the teams as a whole. And I think overall it'll help the show. And where I'm going with this is that if you can't get technology – that these other manufacturers are using in other forms of motorsports, then you're never going to get them to come your way. I mean, they've had their opportunity for, what, 60-some years now to, to come and get a, get involved with NASCAR, and they've chose not to do it. And I think that this is something that is going to allow them to feel more more like this is a good investment for them to get people to buy their cars. I mean, that's the reason why Ford and Chevrolet and Toyota are involved in NASCAR right now. They've been able to connect. I mean, you can see it by this year's new car, that when you put some of the showroom pieces that are out there beside one of their race cars, you can see that that, that resemblance. You can hear and you know that these cars are, are got more pep than they've ever had on the street in recent years. This is a lot of pluses that helps their sales forces on Monday to move their product and you're not going to get other people to come in unless they can move their product also and you look at the wheels we're racing right now they look just like what you'd see on a on a bmw or any other kind of foreign car i, I say foreign because they're not they weren't you know basically started here in the united states that's the only reason i use that term yeah so jeff on that i'm going to hold you or just stop for a second you just mentioned wheels and uh, Jeff can, I'm sure we, we've talked about and looked at. It. Jeff, give me your opinion in, in two races so far. We have found and seen, when I say we found because we watched the race, mm -hmm. uh, that there's been some wheel situations, some wheel failures or some alignment failures. Not 100% sure what. And, and these crew chiefs, and I'm asking you uh, uh, just uh, your opinion, not, not good, bad, indifferent, whatever. But, you know, we had two wheels have a problem at Daytona. We had one at California. All of a sudden, and then they're suspending crew chiefs for four weeks or four races and crew members and all that. Do you, do you think that's a right step in a brand-new car when there apparently is some form of error, as we all know? And I know you as a crew chief never wanted a wheel to fall off your car. You intentionally never left it happen. So uh, do you think the NASCARs went a little too far on this? Just two races in a year suspending crew chiefs for four races because— something's not aligning in the wheel system or do you think it's self-induced by the teams 
without having a lot of the facts in front of me, Mike, mm-hmm. um, my first reaction is they're going too far. All right. I, I know that NASCAR has had that in recent years as we come into 2022. That's a rule that was with the old steel wheels, and that's why the, you leave loose lug nuts, you have a wheel come off. That was a rule that was, you know, you were hit with. No ifs, and the buts about it. You know, that's the black and white call by NASCAR. With the new wheel and the circumstances, um, I am, I do believe that they need to evaluate a lot like they did whenever they confiscated the wheels at Daytona uh, from RFK as well as Team Penske and eventually said, no foul, you know, we're going to do this, 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 and this. I mean, the rule was when they started with this new car, you touch any part on it that comes from a manufacturer that we haven't told you to touch in a certain manner, you know, you automatically are going to get busted. But they backed off. I think this could also be another scenario where are they really being fair to the teams or do we actually have a wheel problem? And, and when I say that, and Mike, maybe you've already addressed this with your, with your listeners, even during you know, practice sessions and testing, we've heard that there's been some issues with the wheels. And for that reason, as we move into the season, you've got to believe that they've addressed that. But we, as we find every week, there's always something that comes up. And, I mean, number one thing is along the same line of the tires and the wheels is now when you get a flat tire, you can't drive it back around the pit road because you've got no interliner to get it in the pit road. So now they got to pick you up on a wrecker. You're losing laps and – you know, NASCAR say, well, you know, you shouldn't have got a flat tire. Well, the guy spun out in front of me. I have no choice. You know, it wasn't, I didn't desire to spin my car out to keep from, or make a flat tire so I could lose laps, you know, waiting on your record crew to move me back down on pit road. We, we, we're always going to have issues until we get at least halfway through the season and work through all the problems that every racetrack is going to bring up. And I hate it for the competitors because some of them, are paying the price of learning. And this penalizing the crews may wind up being the same thing. You know, I hate it because you're going to penalize a guy and it happens six more times and you all of a sudden realize, oh, well, maybe we were unfair the first four times and we should have done this or should have done that. I'm hoping that NASCAR is taking the time on a Monday to reevaluate because, you know, they haven't gone to Las Vegas yet. So they, they still have an opportunity to either lessen the penalty or be able to at least explain why the penalty is being enforced which is my my next question i mean you know i heard about the penalties and whatnot but why why were those crew chiefs penalized what did they do well they they just unfortunately and jeff correct me if i'm saying this wrong unfortunately a wheel come detached from their car right they personally did nothing now and my question was is that we as drivers as jeff hammond as a winning crew chief Jeff Ken is a car owner, you know. You don't want your wheels to fall off your car. No. You work really that's, hard on that. I mean, not that's just. That's probably going to negatively uh, impact your efforts. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah. then to turn around and disrupt your team dramatically by suspending the crew chief or car chief or someone, I don't understand. So I was that's why I was wondering what Jeff's opinion of it is. He The, the great part Jeff's got is that he has seen it from the competitor standpoint and then I always know there's this whole new scenario, which is television. There, that's another scenario that we hardly ever talk about. And, Jeff, 
can probably tell us as we go through this, there's a lot of things that are driven by television that make the race weekend, the race, the event that it is. And right. uh, so I was just wondering about your thought on the suspension of all the crew chiefs, because I, I don't like it myself. I, well, especially in a, I don't, I don't like it either, but you got to go one step further, Mike. And, and the, the biggest reason why it seems so harsh is it is a safety issue. When you get a tire and wheel that comes away from a race car, it doesn't lay down flat on the racetrack. You don't know where it's going. If somebody hits it, it could wind up in grandstands. If it's coming down pit road, it could hit somebody on pit road. Um, just remains on the racetrack. I mean, it could still, you know, take a fellow competitor out by hitting it in the windshield area or front nose of the car. It could do a lot of severe damage. So with that being said, I think that's one of the reasons why they it seems such a harsh penalty but when you look at the rest of the story and what's behind it it's not just a matter of trying to you know be in charge and show that they have the ability to uh, send a crew chief home which is um, you know every every crew chief that's his biggest fear is being told you know you're you got to go home and you can't come back next week or the week after that because of something your guys did. So as a crew chief, you know, and when I was working recently with the truck series and everything, every time I went through the room of doom, every time I was on pit road, I mean, I knew that I had a target on my back. And NASCAR always had a bullseye right there that they could shoot at if I did something or my guys did something that they didn't like. And you sit up on that pit box you listen to all the rules and, and the uh, pre-race stuff that goes into what NASCAR tells you about that day's event, and you know the rest of the rules, If and if you've been doing your job and keeping up with the overall severity of the penalties, you know what's going to happen, but yet you still choose to go up there and throw caution to the wind and hope and pray that everything goes smooth so you don't wind up getting you know, that pink slip for the next few weeks. Yeah, well, so, so why don't we do this, Jeff? Why don't we take a, a break at this moment, and we can come back and really get to the point of our show, which is who was Jeff Hammond? I, I appreciate, the, appreciate the inside of the car. Is there, Before we get out of this segment, though, is there anything else that jumps out at you at the new car that, you, that either you like or dislike? I like the fact, Mike, that right now we're working in an area with a race car that seems like it's going to turn better than what it used to. Uh, you know, one of the biggest things is everybody wants to carry that speed through the center of a corner. And it was so hard to be able to do that because the cars wouldn't rotate like they needed to. And I think LA Coliseum showed on a quarter mile racetrack and a big heavy race car, that thing did pretty dang good. And it's got pretty decent forward bite. Now, again, one race does not make it perfect and we have nothing else to measure against. But when we get to Martinsville, we get to Richmond, get to, you know, the dirt race at Bristol will be totally different. But, you know, these short tracks, Loudon, uh, we'll get a better understanding. Did they bring all this technology? Is it giving us what we wanted, which is, you know, a more competitive race? I think the race at California was about as good as I have seen and can remember in a decade. There you and, go. We'll hold that thought. Know, and it reminds okay. me of a song that Daryl Waltrip used to sing. You picked a fine time to leave me loose wheel. <laughs> time to go. 
go to break. He thinks just like Walter. Go to break. Go to, go to break. break. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network presented by Crosley and NASCAR Digital Media. Welcome back to the Crosley Speed Sports Studios. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. Today's guest, longtime NASCAR crew chief, Jeff Hammond. And once again, here's Mike. Well, Jeff, thanks for taking that first segment and dealing with the new car. We appreciate that. That's normally out of our ordinary of our show. So let's get to the show, which the story is, is who was Jeff Hammond before he's Jeff Hammond? Tell us a little bit about, did you get brought up around racing? Is it something, when did you create an interest in it? And give us a little background of your life. All right, let's get one thing straight. I'm Jeff Hammond. I was a nobody then. I'm Jeff Hammond. I'm a nobody now. I'm just like any other guy out there on the street or any other lady that's, you know, a mom, whatever. Uh, because where I was raised over in Dorada, North Carolina, uh, we're just a bunch of old country contractors and farmers. And that's kind of like where I started out was my dad and my granddaddy with the construction company. And my real desire was to uh, play professional sports, more importantly, to play, play football. And as I was growing up, uh, junior high and high school, uh, that was what I wanted to do. But somewhere along the way, I guess I was 12 years old. I'll back up here a little bit. I was 12 years old. Saturday morning, I was still in bed. My uncle come knocking on my bedroom door. And he said, get up. Why? I don't want to go fishing. I hate fishing. <laughs> so he said, no, no, we're going to do something good today. And he was going to go to Lancaster, South Carolina, and he was going to buy a dirt car, and he was going to start dirt racing, and he wanted me to go with him. And that was my introduction to stock cars at the time, up close and personal. It was a 1956 Ford with a 246 cylinder engine in it, and it was painted school bus yellow. And that's, that's where it all began, was working out underneath his carport uh, during the week, loading up in the truck on Friday night, going to Starlight Speedway down in Monroe, and it's Saturday night going back to Lancaster, South Carolina, to race on the dirt tracks here locally, and eventually Metrolina, Carolina, you know, you just all the different racetracks around here, Concord. But uh, it was a great learning lesson for me because I hated doing homework. And I couldn't work on the race car. Mom would let me work on the race car until I had my homework done. So I'd come home from school, get my homework done, go work on the race car. And it, it went on like that for about a year and a half. And then my dad realized the interest that we had, along with my brother, who's three years younger than I am. And we started building our own race car. And so we raced out of our, what wound up being a shop. We took our carport and, and closed it and made it into a, made it into a race shop. We started building engines. Dad had a mechanical background from working in the military as well as some of the local car, car dealerships. So we started building engines, and he teached me how to pack wheel bearings, and he had a friend of ours come over and teach me how to weld when I was like 14. So that was kind of like the, uh, the beginning of understanding racing. But not, I still hadn't cracked through that idea I wanted to have a career in racing. I still wanted to be a football player uh, all the way up through high school and when I went to college at East Carolina, I still wanted to do that. I, I liked racing, but I love football. 
And so you love football. So what happened in the football world or what didn't happen in the football world? I didn't stay healthy. I wound up tearing up my left uh, knee, uh, got all the cartilage and everything ripped out of it. And back in those days, that was more of a major surgery than an arthroscopic type surgery. And it, you know, recovery was always uh, a problem. Rehab was not always 100% successful. And when you're no bigger than I am and was no faster than what I was, I mean, you can have a lot of heart. But when you, you get hurt like that, you, you lose the one thing that makes a difference, and that's your speed and agility. And I just didn't have the speed and agility once I had that knee issue and realized that I didn't want to stay down in East Carolina and not be able to play football. I didn't want to stay down in East Carolina and cost my mom and dad money when I could come back home and go to Central Piedmont or some other college close by to get, you know, get an education. And the other thing was, well, couldn't play football. Uh, they still got a few race cars in Charlotte, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, let me ask you something about that from the football side, if you don't mind. And I'm trying to kind of, I'm probably diving in deeper than I should, but at the same time, I've always wondered this because, you know, when I, uh, I chose the opportunity to come racing for a living, I, I did it because I thought I would be miserable the rest of my life if I didn't give it a shot, right? I didn't know. I mean, I had a, a business deal going on back in St. Louis, Missouri. I had two brothers that were racing, and it's like, man, if I don't go do this, I'm, I'm just really not going to know what I could You'd still been. be in the vacuum cleaner business. And my business would still be sucking. <laughs> But it was a good business. But from the when yep. you when you got hurt in the football world, Jeff, and you couldn't fr- pursue that dream, were, were you okay with yourself moving on to something else, or did that bother you for a period of time? I, I'm just curious how that w- works. Uh, if you want to call it a mind game, a little bit, where you you know. No, you, you you bring up a very valid point, and even today, uh, it still bothers me. Okay. Because it, it's a it's a feeling, and and Mike. It would be like if you had never, you know, put a helmet on, or if you'd have put a helmet on one time and, and got a little taste of what it was like, and never went any further, would you have been satisfied? And I got a taste of what it feels like to run out of the tunnel after on the field. Uh, I know what it's like to score a touchdown. I know what it's like to be on defense and 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 basically, you know, clean somebody's clock. And how good it feels to, to do that, um, and I still remember the times I got my clock clean. So uh, it's it's all about the experience, and it's all about that the moment, living in the moment, uh, and that's uh, that's always you know going to linger to probably the day that I that I die. I mean, because I love sports as a whole, uh, all sports. I mean, football was my number one deal. I enjoyed playing baseball. I quit doing that in the end of my junior high year so I could spend more time with football. But also I enjoy playing golf. Uh, so everybody who's, who is involved in sports, they, they should understand and relate to this. It's, it's in that moment that you do something that makes you think, you know, you, you know you're the GOAT. You're the goat that day, you know. Uh, Jeff you're, you're Kent comes in and tells me that's his golf game all the time. And I have a hard time believing him. I mean, I play golf. I play golf at least twice a week, you know. And it's just like it's birdie in a hole, or what happens if you birdie two holes in a row? You're like, I'm the man today, right? I can't, you know. Well, it's, it's a you great know, how about, how about 
how about a chip shot off the green or out of the sand, and all of a sudden, you know, you roll it in. Right. You know, hey, Mickelson ain't got nothing on me. Hey, <laughs> Tiger who? You know, yeah. it's like, that's, it's the mind game of feeling like you got this thing. But then all of a sudden reality hits you and say, I ain't got it. It's got me. <laughs> it's right. making me look like a fool. I, you know, so. I just chipped in for eagle, and then I duck-hooked my drive on the <laughs> next hole, you know? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh I, yeah. I can relate. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy game. Right. So, no, so, but that, that's that's really what it's kind of like all about, and, and, and that's the reason why I think I gravitated back to the racing side was um, where can I get that kind of a feeling? What kind of satisfaction? Well, you know, working on cars and going to, you know, winning a race on Saturday night ain't too bad. And then going and, you know, getting involved with uh, the progression through my career of knowing people like Tiger Thompson and Walter Ballard and Elmo Langley and Jim Vandiver, Frank Warren. I mean, you get in the list. I mean, there's That's a some lot famous of names you just named there. Right. Well, I mean, they were they were the ones that were bringing our sport along. Yeah, we had our superstars. I mean, I, I was around Petty and Pearson. You know, like you mentioned earlier. You know, I was blessed at one time before I went to work for him. You know, to be able to say I knew. Kel Yarber before I ever got a job, you know, with Junior Johnson. But being around those guys and being in that atmosphere where somebody like Harry Hyde is in the garage stall right next to you, and you sit there and you listen to him talk, and uh, depending on who was driving for him at the time, and he he was such a, I don't know, he he was such a contrary but yet fascinating individual by the way he would do business. I mean, he had a little notebook and uh, a pen he kept in his shirt pocket, and he was always writing notes down. They didn't have those really nice-looking notebooks that were, you know, had all the information. It was like his little secret diary he'd write every weekend. And I remember watching him do that. Or, you know, seeing Dale Lemon, you know, change tires on the 43 car because he was the next pit beside you. I mean, it's just... It's the, it's the, it was the moment, and fortunately, the time that I was able to be in the sport, I was very young, and I was able to hang out with what was eventually to be Hall of Fame mechanics and drivers and other crew chiefs. Before they were Hall of Fame drivers and crew chiefs, you're a young boy standing by Richard Petty, Cal Yarborough, watching. Did you realize it was a big deal at that time, or was it just something to do? Was it just kind of a job, or did you go... This is going to be special, or this is special. Mike, I never thought at that point in time that our sport was to be put on a pedestal uh, like Canton, Ohio, with the Hall of Fame for football, you know, or you know, baseball. Um, and it's just, I never, I never thought racing would ever get to there. And don't ask me why, but I, you know, it. it had not happened yet, and so I, it never really crossed my mind. I, it was honestly, it was a job. But as that job progressed, it went from being a job to being a passion. And I can't think of anything else I'd rather do. I mean, it was it was so satisfying to know that you did work on a race car. And you beat 36 or 40 other competitors, depending on what the field size was at the time. And 
you know, you went to victory lane because, you know, you were carrying tires that day or, you know, you changed and put the race engine in and you didn't leave any oil lines loose. You know what I'm saying? It was, uh, it was being a part of and working with individuals like Herb Knapp because Herb was the one who hired me at Junior Johnson's. But working with people like that and being around, you know, Jay Kelder, and I, I mentioned Harry Hyde, uh, Bud Moore, it, it was just, it was super cool. I mean, it really was uh, unbelievable. And, Mike, you may never knew, knew who uh, G.C. Spencer was, but playing poker with people like that on Friday and Saturday night because we didn't have a lot of racing at night, and there wasn't a whole lot of good stuff on TV, and that's just what we did when we went back to the racetrack. Everybody went back to the hotel, the holiday inn, the day's inn, and we'd go to somebody's room and play poker after we got through getting something to eat. That was our entertainment. Were you a pretty good poker got, player? I, I got good lessons. Let's put it that way. In the, in the end, I got to be a pretty dang good poker player because otherwise they would take your money in a hurry. Yeah. Well, we just got a minute or so left in this segment. But let me ask you, you mentioned early in the show about your desire to play football, about putting a helmet on. Had you ever had the desire to put a helmet on and be a race car driver instead of the great? Oh, yeah. You did. Did oh, you yeah. ever get I mean, in I've one? Raced. Oh, yeah. Okay. I've raced many sprints, uh, late model dirt, uh, some asphalt stuff. I mean, I actually, you know, I drove a, an outlaw, uh, not not a world outlaw car, but at the, up, up in Pennsylvania one time I raced, raced a uh, uh, wing sprint car with a carburetor on instead of being fuel injection. Okay. And, and won the race. I mean, I've won some races. I raced Kirk Shermerdine down uh, at Caraway Speedway one time. And, uh, you know, I've won some races and raced them. And the other thing was cool whenever I got into the sport. I was one of the very few guys because I really wasn't, I was kind of small, but I could get in, you know, Kale's car because he was, you know, a lot shorter than everybody else. And I did all, put all these seats in and everything. And when we got to that point where we needed to test stuff, I mean, we literally, we raced and had carbon fiber brakes on our Monte Carlo uh, in 1979. Oh, wow. You were way ahead of time then, weren't you? Oh, yeah. Car. Chevrolet was, you know, had, and, and back then, you know, we're just getting into the uh, disc brake era. And so this was something new, and Chevrolet had an ac had an opportunity to get them. So, I mean, I took them, went up to Wilkesboro, and me and the boys went up there one time, and we ran these brakes uh, to find out how they would hold up before we raced them at Bristol one time. So. Uh, getting a chance to even drive stock cars was, was kind of cool. That's when you stock know? cars were really stock cars, you know what I mean? Yeah, they were. I had, and one of the first cars I bought was a 1977 Monte Carlo. I loved that car. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and I, I tell you, the greatest thing about this show, I just learned something about Jeff Hammond I never knew. <laughs> yeah. So on that note, Jeff, why don't you take us somewhere and bring us back? We'll do that. We'll be back. We're talking to Jeff Hammond. You're, you're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the SpeedSport Podcast Network, presented by Crosley and NASCAR Digital Media. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. Today's guest, longtime NASCAR crew chief Jeff Hammond. Once again, high atop the pit box inside the Crosley Speed Sports Studios, I give you Mike Wallace. Well, thank you, Jeff Kent. And uh, we got to talking during break with Jeff Hammond, and I had to stop Jeff. I says, everything we're talking about is too much fun, and I don't want to have you repeat it. So I was making a comment, Jeff. I didn't know that you were a race car driver, that you'd ever even strapped on a helmet. And tell me what you started telling me in break of how much experience you had driving race cars. 
Well, I've, I've had a little bit, Mike, again, but compared to you guys do what you did know. Well, so, I understand that, I, but I mean, what... Right, but, yeah. but what you're saying to me is I had enough interest and in, in, that I wanted the, I wanted the race, and again, I had a plan in, in, of having a driving career until the early 80s, and that's when uh, Darrell Waltrip showed up there at Junior Johnson Associates, and I was running late model uh, dirt here in the Carolinas at the time, and a lot of times I wouldn't go early in the week. I'd go on Saturday or Sunday to go in and pit the car and work on other cars uh, Monday through Friday. So it left me a little bit of room to, to race. But where I'm going with this, I went to junior in 82, at the end of 81, because, you know, Tim Brewer and Harold Elliott and everybody else had left juniors and left Daryl. We didn't have a crew chief. And I raised my hand to get the job. And I'd like to have an opportunity, I told him. And he looked me dead in the eye and he said, Okay, he said, if I give you this opportunity, are you going to get rid of your race car? I said, what race car? (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I had to make a choice. Do I want to work for Junior Johnson as a crew chief and work with somebody like Darrell Walter, or do I want to try to pursue a career uh, in driving? And anybody that's been a race car driver should know, because most of the time you had to own your own cars or pay for somebody to let you drive their cars, that you don't make a lot of money in the beginning. And you spend a lot of money. So I realized this is not the way I need to do it. So I, I got rid of my race car, started crew chiefing. But also when Daryl got there, you know, we would have debates about, you know, the cockpit, you know, his his office, I'd call it. And we were having a debate one day about the seats and everything. So, dang, I put them in there the same way every time. Well, these seat brackets are not always the same. So you just can't always get a measurement here and get a measurement there. you got to get in it. you got to fit it. you got to make it comfortable. Otherwise... I'm going to fall out of the seat because it's going to be uncomfortable. He said, you ought to try driving one of these things that doesn't fit you. Okay. <laughs> well, I got I got, I got, got lucky, and I called and talked to Buck Baker down at, you know, uh, legendary racing school down at Rockingham, and I was able to go down there one weekend and went through Buck Baker's driving school. Uh, skid pad, the whole nine yards. Uh, I was real lucky. A gentleman named Brett Hearn, if anybody ever watched Dirt Modifieds, I mean, he famous, pretty famous dang good in dirt racing. Yeah. Uh, so he was trying to, you know, get his uh, introduction to asphalt and see what he thought about it. So that weekend was a, a lot of fun. Got a chance to be friends, become friends with Brett. But also I got to drive a variety of race cars from old IROC cars, had treaded tires on them, uh, Banjo uh, cup cars, banjo late models, sportsman cars at the time, and then also some Mike Laughlin front steer cars. And I really understood afterwards how I did not like a rear steer car getting in the corner, but it turned better through the center and got off better. The other one, front steer, Laughlin's car, man, you could drive that thing all the way to the center, and it still felt pretty good coming off. So a lot of these things that I had never had a feel for became clearer to me and also by getting in each one of these race cars the ones that didn't fit me man i used a lot of lot of energy just trying to stay in the seat and all of a sudden ding 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 when the driver says he needs to work on something yes sir what do we, what do we need to do because it is it is his office but you got to realize sometimes maybe they don't have the skill set to get it exactly right you need to be the one to make sure you get it right. And, Mike, I know you've taken a hammer probably to a seat or two along your way, aluminum ones, or jacked them around a certain way to get them where they feel good to you. And I never questioned a driver after that 
when they said we need to work on my seat or my headrest or the steering wheel because I knew if I could get them comfortable, I'd make them faster. Well, that's why you've turned out to be such a great crew chief, Jeff, because I'll tell you what, that's one thing I remember back in the early days, and Jeff Kent, I found out in the early days of racing, a lot of crew guys didn't acknowledge that the driver needed to be comfortable, like Jeff's saying. It and, makes perfect sense. I mean, think about it. If if the driver's not comfortable, then he's not totally focused on the task at hand, is he? Well, as Jeff Jeff Hammond just said, he he kind of got that after being in the car, and that was a deal, a little bit of a deal I struck early in my life, or had to fight against this guy. Oh, it's just a race. Just go drive the thing. I mean, seat belts are adjustable. If you don't like it, we'll get somebody else in it. <laughs> That's exactly so you drove uncomfortable, but it's like, oh, man, I could be so much better if I could just be comfortable. So uh, great no. deal. So you, it's, it's very important. Yeah, you got all that knowledge, Jeff, that you, you went to Junior Johnson. Uh, you got the opportunity to be a crew chief if he told you to get rid of your race car, and you said, I don't know what race car you're talking about. So, <laughs> and uh, you started driving, and Daryl Walter was your driver, or you raced, and then you got to test now and then. Uh, right at that point, how are things going? What's progressing? What's happening? You got Daryl Walter and Jeff Hammond, who, uh, you know, as we all know, came to be just this incredible group, but how, how did it progress at that point? I guess the easiest way to put it, Mike, is I realized my job was making Daryl happy, and my job was also being what he needed me to be on Sunday. And when I say that, folks, it's really you can't get into a verbal battle with your driver. You can't take it personal in the heat of the moment. And I, I realized that with Daryl, that if, you, if you're if you off and you work hard and accept whatever he gives you over the over the radio, this thing here is a piece of crap. You know, this thing drives like a dump truck. You know, realizing he's trying to describe how bad the situation is from his viewpoint. You know, he wants to be up front leading laps. He doesn't want to be stuck back in traffic. And when he can't go forward, you know, people are passing him, he's going to be irritable. And... Our philosophy was whatever was said on Sunday was for God on Monday. And that probably meant more to our success than anything. Because I had real thick skin, and I didn't, I didn't holler at him or anything like that. It was giving encouragement, you know, trying to help him. You know, I'm like, I was that pressure relief valve. Whatever you need to do. You need to cuss me, cuss me. You know, just don't, you know, stay out. Don't don't cuss the pit crew, cuss the crew chief. You know, fuss at me, don't fuss at them. And in the long run, um, I think it made me a better person. Taught me more. Taught me all about patience. And uh, in the long run, you know, it, it turned out to be, uh, it, you know, I was part of helping to get him have to have such a successful career, and you know, get him in the, in the hall of fame. Yeah, well, you definitely did that without a doubt, and it, we can continue to talk forever about you know how a, how different drivers were to work with. How about Junior Johnson though, as a team owner? I mean, uh, you know, I'm a kid that just grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, where stock car racing wasn't all that big a deal. We did do it on Friday, Saturday night, but Junior Johnson's name was always iconic. How was the experience uh, of being a, a crew chief, employee, all of the above with Junior Johnson? Uh I have referred to the fact that when I got the chance to go up to the shop, what is located, they say it's in, in Rhonda, North Carolina. It's back, this, back down a little further. But we used to always say that we used to go 
to the University of Rhonda at Ingle Hollow. And that was the name <laughs> of the little area that, you know, the, the shop sat in. And Junior Johnson was a professor because you not only got an education in racing, but you got a lot of life lessons that went along with it. You know, Junior being the country boy he was, and for a man who did not have a college degree, the way he managed money, the way he managed people, uh, was totally, I mean, it was just, it was totally unexpected. Because you would have thought that anybody that went up there, that he would be telling you how to do it and showing you this and being there every day doing this, that, and the other. And it, it was it was not that way. During the day, a lot of times, he was out on his farm. He'd be working and everything. But he'd come through periodically during the day when you were working. And he would look and see what you were working on and how you were progressing. And I, I remember distinctly, he'd walk up, he'd look kind of, what, what are you doing? Look over here, look around. And if he walked on, we just kept on doing what we were doing. There'd be days he'd walk in and he'd look and say, I don't think I'd do it that way. And here was the here was the part. It took me a while to figure it out. But we, whenever he tell you that, that means he didn't like it. And what we're doing, he's not going to like when we finish it. So we need to, we need to come up with a, a different way. And we would immediately, between all of us, we'd put our heads back together and try to figure out what do we need to change that we're not seeing. So he made you better because you had to figure it out. He didn't tell you the solution, but he would tell you there's a, there's a, there's another way of doing this, and I think you're going to be happier about it, and, and he would be happier about it. He just taught in a very unusual manner uh, that forced you to think, and think not just in your, your little basically um, blinder-type world. Look at big picture. You know, what are we doing here, and why are we doing it this way? They don't teach that in college. They don't. I mean, you no. either have that no. gift or you don't. You know. No, and that's, that's what I say. He he gave left life lessons that all of us, you know, can cherish from working on race cars, great things about that and strategy. But he also would teach you how to put a garden in, you know, <laughs> how to make sausage. I mean, cause we had to kill <laughs> kill hogs on certain mornings. We go down and help do that. Um, work with the cows. I mean, it it was. A lot of different things. I mean, I, I like telling this story more than any others. Is I can do something I guarantee you the two of you guys can't do. I can put a dog collar on a wild raccoon. A dog <laughs> and not collar on a wild raccoon. Now, what would bring up the it. promptness of even trying to attempt that? That's I mean, the, old, the movie Jackass wasn't right around there. back Come then. On, so. Right? <laughs> like, like, like I said, I learned things by going coon hunting with him at night. And him getting raccoons to help train his coon dogs, which he was very proud of. But we'd knock them out of a tree, and, you know, we'd catch them and then put them up in a cage there back at the above where the dog lot is. But to be able for Junior to be able to take them out and help train the dogs, you had to get a dog collar on them so you could put a like a dog chain on them to be able to pull them out of the cage, take them over to the dog lot. It's, it's, a, it's a really unique way he did it. But he showed me that, you know, you get a... You get a snare, you catch the coon in the snare, put him inside a burlap sack, and he showed me how to get on top of him so that he couldn't scratch me and he couldn't bite at me and find out where his nose was. Cut him a little bitty hole, he'll start sticking his nose out, and once he sticks that nose out, he can't claw at you. You can get a hold of his head, 
put the dog collar around him, and you got control of him. Unbelievable! Yeah, crazy. You know what? I can guarantee <laughs> you, and I haven't talked to every crew chief in any way, but I bet you Jeff Hammond's the only crew chief that that was able to do that. I mean, other than Junior Johnson himself. Right. I mean, that that's pretty talented. I guarantee Going you, none of those guys hunting would... with Junior Johnson. There <laughs> yeah. you go. Yeah, that's it. I, I mean, many people and... could tell that story. That's cool. Going, going catfishing the way we used to do it. I mean, we used to go telephone and call them up. You ever done that, Mike? No, no. You got to you're teaching me some stuff right now. I'm loving. <laughs> tell me how you telephone up a catfish. I I did talk to Jeffrey Earnhardt a while back about noodling. That was a new new one on me. You know, stick your arm down in the water and yeah. in a catfish's mouth and lift them up out of the water. Oh, so, uh, yeah. well, I mean, I say that means you got to get bit. You know, that's <laughs> and and you you may bring out something else you don't like. Yeah, I asked him <laughs> what 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 was the merit of noodling the catfish and. Because I like to, and it's like, okay, to yeah, each his own, you know. Yeah. So tell me what uh, telephoning up a catfish would be. Well, if, if you remember uh, watching some of the old films, uh, especially Army or the old type of crank phones, they used to have to kind of crank, 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 yeah, crank, yeah, and, yeah, and make, yeah. it, make it make it power. Yeah. Well, if you get one of those old-style power packs, like in the military, it's got the handles on it. And you take and put the leads, which we used to use, you know, a piece of wire, regular telephone-type wire, and lug nuts, and put it on a float. We'd literally float down uh, the river and find a place where there's rocks, throw them wires off in there, and start spinning that some gun. The electrical, electrical charge that is put through the water, catfish will stick their head up out of the water, and you literally can scoop them up with a net. Now, make sure you understand this right here is against the law. <laughs> All right? And statute of limitations have run out of us. The only reason I would even tell the story. But that's what we do. We put life jackets on, float down the river in our white uniforms, you know, clothes and all, no swimsuit, just go down the river, telephone up catfish till we had a uh, burlap sack full of them, and then to go back to shop and have a catfish fry. Jeff can on that nah, note. I mean, Jeff, you know, we got to take a break. We're going to come back. Things. i got to think about this. I'm, I'm learning how to catch catfish. That's cool. We're talking to Jeff Hammond. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, presented by Crosley and NASCAR Digital Media. Welcome back to the Crosley Speed Sports Studios. This is Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. Today's guest, longtime NASCAR crew chief Jeff Hammond is with us. We've learned how to telephone a catfish and... God knows what else. Jeff Kent, Jeff Ham, and I, I've learned so much today. I mean, I really can't. I, I've never heard of tele calling up a catfish in my life. And uh, so it appears we could talk about all day long about different things that happened up at Junior Johnson's uh, University of Common Sense, I call it. But uh, let's fast forward from Junior Johnson time and you and Daryl Waltrip and Jeff, you had it earlier, 48, 47 cup wins that put you in a superstar star status and put you you know of course put your driver Daryl Waltrip in the Hall of Fame after Daryl Waltrip and Junior Johnson where did you go Jeff because I know you stayed in the sport for a long time from that what uh, what was the next step well I mean unfortunately I got an opportunity to go to work for Fox uh, Sports FS1 and you know work and talk about the sport that I love so much uh, very much blessed to have uh, worked in the, what they called at the time Hollywood Hotel and did a lot of stuff with cutaway cars and trying to uh, educate the race fan uh, from, you know, 
parts and pieces that they did not understand when they fa failed. We were able to put them in front of them, explain the purpose of the part and why it might have failed and everything. I think it was a really uh, enjoyable and educational part of my career. And, you know, unfortunately, it's like everything else after being doing television for about 18 years. Uh, it was time to, to move on, and I'm still doing, you know, radio with uh, PRN, Performance Racing Network there at Charlotte Moe Speedway. I do a lot of shows for them and work certain races for them, as well as for Sirius XM on Tuesday night. I work with Brad Gilly, which is a – he's a great partner, and we do a show called The Late Shift, three-hour show on uh, Sirius XM every Tuesday night, and every now and then I fill in with, with uh, some other shows that are uh, also on Sirius XM Channel 90, the NASCAR – network so uh all good and every now and then i'm still here on the farm you know doing uh, cows and horses and going to rodeos and mike you'll probably find this interesting this weekend i'm getting ready to go to down to me island just outside of uh jacksonville florida uh for a big car show that they put on every year it's uh, hosted by haggerty i think it is uh that haggerty auction company and Ray Everham will be there, but also Mike Wallace. I mean, Mike, your brother Rusty will be there as one of the panelists, along with Kyle Petty, and uh, I think uh, also we're going to be uh, Chip Ganassi will be down there. So it, it's going to be, uh, I think, a very exciting Friday and Saturday. And then I'm going to leave there, fly to Fort Worth, and go to the American Rodeo. Uh, it's called the American uh, there at uh, Dallas Cowboy Stadium uh, in uh, Dallas. Nice. So, Boy, you uh, just got a lot going on. That, that it's, it's Bike Week in Daytona, too, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I was actually next? talking. Yeah. No, it's this week. I was talking yeah. to people the, just the other day about that. And uh, it's uh, it's happening all around the country. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's spring is springing, and uh, <laughs> everything is kind of coming to life, and everybody's getting outside and wanting to do something. So it's it's a fun time of the year. Yeah, the Amelia Island. Now, that's a, like a big concourse car show or something right i mean that's a real fancy what i call a real fancy yeah, event they got some sweet golf courses down there too. Do they? Yeah. well I, this is where y'all have me at a disadvantage it'll be a first timer for me so i'll be a rookie but i am looking forward to going down there and being a part of this i mean anytime you've got ray everham your brother and kyle petty i mean i can sit back on the back row and just laugh because i know <laughs> something sooner or later they're going to be telling stories and it'll be funny well, and besides telling stories, you, you, you've got all the experience to tell great stories. So I'm sure you'll be on the front row there. Let, you know, I'm going to jump back when you mentioned your, your stint at, at Fox. I was reading, and I remember all the time, but how did you get – I think I know the story, but I need you to kind of confirm or tell. How did you get the name Hollywood Hammond? Because that, that was a great, great <laughs> stage name, if I can say it that way, you know, or a nickname. Who, who gave you that, and how'd that come about? It really got started, uh, Mike, in 1981. We were had Mountain Dew as a sponsor. I wasn't crew chief then, but like I said, I was with Junior. And we had to take one of our race cars down there at Charlotte Motor Speedway and get ready to shoot a Mountain Dew commercial, which involved they needed to shoot a lot of B-roll with the car going around the racetrack. So I was sent down there. I drove the car. I worked with the, the director and the, and the uh, producer, from Mountain Dew and the agency that was shooting the commercial on Monday on Monday to get everything done. So when Tuesday came in, that's when Junior and the rest of the crew and Daryl would come in, and we were going to shoot some victory lane deals. So it was after what all I did on Monday, we came in on Tuesday, and there were set 
a director's chair. You know, everybody used to talk about how the director had a chair with his name on the back of it. Well, the folks with the agency had gone out that afternoon and had a chair made up that said Hollywood Hammond, director. <laughs> <laughs> and they were they were so satisfied with me working with them and helping them because they didn't know anything about race cars. They didn't know anything about how to shoot, you know, in-car scenes and, you know, what would be good, what would be bad. And that's what I, I tried to educate them on. And they were very... Um, you know, they weren't resistant, let's put it that way. You know some people, they got something in their mind, they don't want to change it. But when they ask the question, you give them an answer, and you'd help facilitate it. And they were very grateful because they felt like they would have been there two or three extra days getting not getting what they really wanted. And we got most of it done in day one, and everything else went really good for the Victory Lane uh, stuff that we shot to go into commercial. That's where it really came from was those people called me Hollywood and – I don't know, Mike, if you remember a, a guy at work at the juniors named Hinky Eanes. Didn't know him, but remember hearing that particular name. Don't Didn't know him yeah. personally. Well, he was a gentleman from up in Virginia who used to come help us on the weekends. And um, <laughs> he's the one, him and Henry Benfield are the ones who. Now, that's an iconic that. name and, in the sport right there, Henry Benfield. Yep, <laughs> Henry Benfield, longtime, you know, gas man, truck driver. I mean, he is, he's, he's, a, he's a crazy Moonshine connoisseur. Yeah, moonshine <laughs> connoisseur. But oh, that's, yeah. That's really, that's really what it, where it came from. And between Hinky and Henry and Daryl, they, they kept that name alive all the way till we got into the Fox deal. And then it really, uh, Daryl brought it up at Rockingham because we, we had a portable studio that, Fox had come up with for Chris and I to work out of pre-race. Mike Joy made a comment uh, about, you know, about uh, Hollywood Hotel, not Hollywood Hotel, the California Hotel. And Daryl said, no, it's not the California Hotel because he was talking about Chris Myers. Uh, Mike was, no, it's the Hollywood Hotel. We got, we got the Hollywood and then we got a guy from Hollywood. So it is the Hollywood Hotel. And that's, that's really what branded it uh, from that point on. Wonderful. I, I didn't know the early story of it. You guys had a great team, yep. too. I mean, that was a great team. I mean, it, that was that was a fun broadcast to watch. Yeah, yeah. always enjoyable. We, we had a blast. We had a blast. Yeah. So so as we're halfway through our segment here, you mentioned rodeos. And you and, you know, we'd met many, many years ago. But there was a mutual friend, I believe, Gordon Whitener, a gentleman that used to put on some rodeos at the racetrack. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't realize that you were such a big rodeo cowboy i mean you're into that aren't you i i really enjoy it i do um back then when i was with with uh gordner's cowboy you know it was united states cowboy tour is what he called it and yes he would go to different racetracks we rodeoed in uh, atlanta georgia talladega here at charlotte i mean we had a lot of rodeos around the nascar circuit and uh, fortunately for me i had a partner and uh, they'd bring the horses that we needed uh, to the rodeo uh, so I could work on cars during the day and slip over to the rodeo that night. I steer wrestled and I team roped and, you know, I just, I really enjoyed it. I don't steer wrestle anymore, but I still team rope and uh, raise the cows here on my place. I got about probably 60, 60 head that we rope and we got another 25 or 30 that uh, were mama cows that we got. Uh, we were actually got a, we downsized a year ago. One time I had two, a little over 200 head here, and so. But I've been a 
stock car stock contractor as well as a competitor and uh, fortunately i've been been blessed to be able to rodeo all over pretty much the southeast and i also went to fort worth there at the uh, cowtown arena which is the uh, oldest indoor arena in the country uh, and a buddy of mine, Jimmy Smith, and I think you probably Cowboy met Jimmy, Jimmy Denton, Texas, USA. Come on. <laughs> you got it. I just you talked to both of them the other day. It was wonderful, yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, Jimmy and I went down there one night. I was still with Jack Roush, and we wound up on a on a Friday night. Jimmy and I won the team rope in there at that, that arena. So, really? Uh, I, that was... Oh, yeah. Yeah. I can't I mean, imagine. I, I, you know, I can't it. imagine I really that. Just... I get off the couch and I hurt my back. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny. I mean, you, uh, Jeff Hammond's had an illustrious career. I mean, really has. I mean, uh, and it's a huge compliment to you, Jeff. The, the diversity of things that you've done. You, you know, besides your college, then you become a race car driver, race car. You know, we'll call it a Hall of Fame crew chief, uh, and things like. You know, cowboy and rodeo and all that stuff. That's that, that's a quite a list of accomplishments. So, uh, it's very manly. Really cool. <laughs> is there is there? <laughs> that was funny, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, I wish we had video on this because that was that was worth its price and admission right there. And, and f- kind of getting to the end of our segment, but I like to include everything that I think I know about you. And you explain. Did did you have a little stint in? Uh, the wrestling world or the broadcasting of wrestling world? What did you do there? I thought, didn't you do some of I've, that? I've, I've done both. I started out announcing and then wound up uh, doing some pay-per-views with the uh, TNA Association and Jeff Jarrett. Um, so, yeah. As, and, a res- uh, as a wrestler or a commentator? I did both. I okay. actually started out as an announcer because uh, they, they were had it was on what we used to be the old Speed Channel. They carried the TNA uh, Association on Speed Channel, and then when it, you know we they needed a broadcaster, wanted to kind of tie something back into racing. So I wound up being the guy that would go help call the the show during the middle of the week, and it'd air like I think on Friday night or Saturday nights. But long story short, um, it was going along there, and, and Jeff looked at me one time and said, "Hey." You guys keep BSing back and forth, you know, mouthing at each other. You want to get involved? So one <laughs> night, the guys, the guys challenged me, and I, you know, next thing you know, I was up in the ring, and we we did some matches from that point on. So be careful what you say, Mike, because Jeff Hammond could kick your ass. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> it's been a, a a few years since I've uh, run into Jeff, but the last I see him, I wouldn't want to get in a bar fight with him. He, he's a pretty tough dude, is all I can tell you. But Jeff Hammond, you know, I, I think we've recapped your career, man. I, I appreciate your time with us because I guarantee you all your fans, our fans, the whole world, right, Jeff? This goes around the world. and uh, This is worldwide. Worldwide. Right? Worldwide. We yeah. back. Uh, what a career. Congratulations, man. That, that's incredible. You know, it, Mike, the best thing about it is, and, and again, I guess this is part of my mentality, is that you know life puts things out there for us to try and experience if we want it and that's kind of like who i am I, I really enjoy the experience because i'll never say i was really good at anything but i was really good at least trying everything yeah well we, we can say you were really good as a crew chief i'll uh, i'll knock your ego up or down there however you want to say it now the bull ride and the wrestling i'm not sure about but uh 
Jeff Hammond, thank you so much for being on the uh, appreciate it, Jeff. Those are good NASCAR stories. NASCAR man, show. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Well, I really appreciate you inviting me on, and 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 Mike, you know we. We've been around each other a long time, and anytime I can do something and help you out and get a chance to talk about the sport that we both love, uh, I'm there, Ben. I'm there for you. We appreciate it very much. remember, Mike, the whole world is listening. The whole world is listening. You've been listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, presented by Crosley and NASCAR Digital Media. We'll see you next week.